number 41, and we'll be reading the last portion. A couple of weeks ago we met, it's been two weeks since we've been together, and we looked at Genesis chapter number 41 in the first section of uh, this passage. We looked at Joseph and no more trial, no more difficult circumstances. What, what do we say? Finally, promotion. Finally, Joseph is exalted to the second uh, in command in all of the land of Egypt. And so we'll look at the last half of Genesis chapter number 41. Let's start reading in verse number 39. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, for as much as God hath showed thee all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. Thou shalt be over my house, and according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than you, or greater than thou. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it upon Joseph's hand and arrayed him in vestures of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him to ride in the second chariot, which he had, and they cried before him, Bow the knee, and he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without thee shall no man lift up his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called his name Zaphnath-Paneah. I got it right. Zaphnath-Paneah. And he gave him to wife Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. And Pharaoh, or excuse me, and Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. And Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh's king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and he went throughout all the land of Egypt. And in, seven plenteous, in the seven plenteous years, the earth brought forth by handful. And he gathered up all the foods of the seven years, which were in the land of Egypt, and laid up the food in the cities. The food of the field, which was round about the cities, laid up, uh, laid he up in the same. And Joseph gathered corn as the sand of the sea very much until he left numbering, for it was without number. And unto Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, which were uh, which Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bare unto him. And, uh, excuse me, and Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For God, said he, hath made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second called he Ephraim, for God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my afflictions. And the seven years of plenteous, uh, plentiness, excuse me, and the seven years of plenteousness that was in the land of Egypt were ended. And the seven years of Darth began to come according as Joseph had said. And the Darth was in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. And when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said unto all the Egyptians, go unto Joseph, what he saith to you, do. And the famine was over all the face of the earth. And Joseph opened, uh, opened all the storehouses and sold unto the Egyptians. And the famine waxed sore in the land of Egypt. And all the countries came to Egypt to Joseph for to buy corn, because that the famine was so sore in all the land. For just a moment tonight, in light of our series to the life of Joseph, a story of God's sovereignty, I'd like us to look at this, uh, this subject, Joseph and Jesus. Simple, simple, to, uh, simple topic, Joseph and Jesus. I'd like us to look at the comparison in Genesis chapter number 41 and see the beautiful parallel that our character in our series, Joseph, paints of the coming Jesus Christ. And so for just a moment, we'll talk about that tonight. Pray with me and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with us tonight as we uh, progress through Genesis chapter number 41 this last half. Thank you so much 
for allowing me to be here tonight. I do appreciate that, Lord. I've been praying that you'd be with me physically, that you would continue to be with me physically tonight, mentally, Lord. I know that uh, I'm tired. I pray that you'd help me not to be a distraction. This truth is, it's life-changing. I'm so thankful I get to preach this on the first service of the year. I'm excited about what you're gonna do at Wooden Valley Baptist Church this year. But Lord, it's only gonna happen if we make much of you. I pray that you'd help us as we progress through this, uh, the rest of this series. Lord, we, we get to see high points in the life of Joseph, but ultimately it's painting a beautiful picture of your exalted son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd help us. Help me again tonight, Lord, as I progress through this series, Lord, in this message, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for reading with me. I've got a question, and it's, it's just right out of the gate. It's a, it's a very tough question. What is the Bible really all about? Oh, man, that's a, I heard crickets. Okay, let's, let's ask it this way. Who is the Bible really all about? Hey, you answered correctly. Jesus, we all know that. The Bible is really a book about Jesus. If you've been coming to our series of the life of Joseph, we've developed that thought and talking about how Joseph is a picture of Jesus Christ. And uh, there have been many people uh, in the secular society, the secular realm that have tried to define what this book really is about and who it's really about. You know, uh, There are people that do not believe in God. They don't believe in Christ, but they look at this book as a historical book and they'll study it from cover to cover. And many historians and secular writers and so forth and uh, professors have tried to decipher what the Bible is really all about and that includes a woman named Rosaria Butterfield, former English professor at Syracuse University. How many of you know who she is? Rosaria Butterfield, have you ever heard her name? None of you. This is great. You're going to find out who she is tonight. <clears throat> Raised and educated in, liberal, uh, in a liberal Catholic setting, Rosaria fell in love with the world of words. In her late 20s, allured by feminist philosophy and LGBT advocacy, she adopted a lesbian identity. Rosaria earned her PhD from Ohio State University, then served... Uh, excuse me, uh, received her PhD from Ohio State University, then served in the English department and women's study program at Syracuse University from 1992 to 2002. Her primary academic field was critical theory, specializing in queer theory. Her historical focus was 19th century literature informed by Freud, Marx, and Darwin. She advised the LGP student group wrote Syracuse University's policy for same-sex couples, and actively lobbied for LGBT aims alongside her lesbian partner. In 1997, while Rosaria was researching the religious right and their politi uh, politi politics and hatred for uh, people like me, she wrote an article against the Promise Keepers who had a booth on the campus of Syracuse University. Real quick, how many of you remember the Promise Keepers back in the uh, uh, late 80s and early 90s? And so she wrote... <laughs> Excuse me. She wrote this uh, letter to the Promise Keepers that had a booth that was set up on campus. A response to that article triggered a meeting with Ken Smith, who became a resource on the religious right in their Bible, a confidant, and a friend. In 1997, as she began to collect information and resources for her new book, The Pitfalls of Re Religiosity and the Bible, she thought that the best way to form a foolproof position against the Bible was to read the Bible. As a writer and a student of literary typography, she understood that the interpretation of any narrative was strictly based upon the reader, not the writer. After all, that was the beauty of reading history's greatest chronicles. But after repeatedly reading the Bible in large portions for her research, to her frustration, she found that she could not interpret the meaning based on her free imagination and self-reflection, but that the Bible was one continuous narrative with one main purpose, and that purpose was the deliverance of man through the sacrifice of the one whom they call Jesus Christ. 
How could a book with so many different authors convey one complete thought? Unless, perhaps, there really was one author, God himself. Over the course of two years of research, her curiosity turned to conviction, and her conviction turned to conversation. Her conversation turned to her conversion, and in 1999, she accepted the truth and became a Christian. Wow. Her memoir, The Secret Thought of an Unlikely Convert, which, by the way, I'm about three or four chapters into that book. It's a great book. I recommend it highly. She chronicles that difficult journey. Rosaria is now married to Kent, a reformed Presbyterian pastor in North Carolina, and is a homeschool mother of three, author and speaker. And those of you who don't, uh, no one really, I don't believe anybody raised their hand, but she speaks nationwide at secular universities and at different, uh, at different graduation addresses. And she speaks, really her, 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 uh, her expert, area of expertise has not changed. She expert, her area of expertise is the queer theory, but now it's through the foundation of what the word of God teaches rather than what philosophy and rather than what the universities teach. But I say all that to say this, did you catch what she said? She came to Christ by reading the Bible and she was trying to uh, form an opinion, or she, rather, she was trying to uh, form a foolproof argument against the Bible, and as she read the Bible, she found, and this is exactly what she said, the Bible was one continuous narrative with one main purpose, and that purpose was the deliverance of man through the sacrifice of the one whom they call Jesus Christ. And that is what a secular, a secular professor said about the Bible. She said that the Bible really is a book about Jesus Christ, and it led to her conviction and eventually her conversion in 1999. What a story. And I must concur, the Bible really is about Jesus Christ, and we like to say that. We're, we're students of the Word of God, and I understand most of us that were raised in church, we were raised, oh yeah, the Bible is a, a book about the Word of God, but did you know in a very literal sense, everything in this book points to Jesus Christ? Everything in this book, from Old to New Testament, everything points to Jesus Christ. It's a story of either his coming, his arrival, or his return. It's gonna, in the Old Testament, it, it pictures Jesus, and it's pointing to, excuse me, in the New, uh, yeah, Old Testament, it's pointing to Jesus coming, and then in the New Testament, it's pointing at his coming, and then as you progress through the New Testament, it's pointing back at his crucifixion and his arrival, and then eventual, his eventual return. Everything in this book points to Jesus Christ, and we know that, we understand that. I've heard it said this way, the Old Testament pictures Jesus abstractly, abstractly, and the New Testament pictures Jesus concretely, solid, established, confirmed. If the Bible ended with Malachi, we'd be in a lot of trouble, wouldn't we? If all God did was deliver the law, although he does establish a gateway for getting into heaven, uh, uh, excluding grace, I'm so thankful the New Testament came and just in the nick of time, God provided his son, Jesus Christ, to abolish the law, that way we could all be under grace. He administers grace in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 11. Now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the earth are come. Romans chapter 15 and verse number four. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort in the scriptures might have, what's that next word? I love that word, hope. That we might have hope. Luke 24 verse 27 and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, expounded unto them all the scriptures, the things concerning who? Himself. John chapter five and verse number 50, uh, excuse me, 30, uh, 39, uh, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. 
Jesus Christ understood himself, that this book, the Bible, is a book about himself. It's a book that points to his coming, his death, burial, and his resurrection, and his eventual return. The whole Bible points to Jesus Christ. We understand that, right? Anybody wanna argue with me there? Great. So we've established this thought, that in the Old Testament, we have types of Christ. We have pictures of Jesus Christ. That is something that resembles or pictures Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And we've developed this thought, there's probably not a greater picture of Jesus Christ than that in the life of Joseph. I believe he's the greatest type of Christ, the greatest picture of Jesus Christ in all of the Old Testament. And I've said this before, but it would be an absolute tragedy for us to progress through the life of this man, Joseph, who has a lot to teach us, by the way. It would be a tragedy for us to progress through the life of Joseph and to get Joseph but miss Jesus. We have much to glean, again, through the life of this man, Joseph, but above everything else, we get an appetizer for what is to come in the New Testament in the form of the name that is above all names, the sweet rose of Sharon, the line of the tribe of Judah. We get an appetizer for what is to come in the New Testament through Jesus Christ, our Savior, by the way. So tonight, can we just pause for just a moment through our progression through the life of Joseph, and can we just talk about Jesus? Is that okay? Can we talk about Jesus? It's the first service of 2019. Uh, uh, spoiler alert, you can see the theme. It's all in for him. I'll let pastor preach on it in a couple of Sundays. But can I tell you something? You want to have a good year in 2019? Make much of him. Make much of Jesus. If you want to have the greatest year that you've ever had, it's going to come at nothing else except making high of Jesus Christ, making big of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and Joseph have a lot in common. They have a lot in common. We've progressed through the life of Joseph and we've hit a lot of the low points and a lot of difficult trials and circumstances that Joseph has had to face. Both were beloved by their fathers. Genesis 37, we talked about this in week number two, but Joseph was beloved by his fathers and uh, it led to the hatred of his brothers. And then in the New Testament, we see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and he's accompanied by Elisha and he's accompanied by Moses, John, and Peter. And they're sitting there and they're looking at Jesus and God comes through and his spirit fills the place. And what does he say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Both Joseph and Jesus were beloved by their fathers. Both were hated by those whom they loved. Both were hated, Genesis chapter number 39. Three times in that passage, we talked about this in week number three, his brothers hated him, they hated him more, and they hated him yet the more. And I don't need to convince anybody in this room that Jesus was hated by those whom loved him. Jesus was hated by the scribes and the Pharisees. Matter of fact, Jesus came unto his own and his own received him not. Jesus was hated by even the Jews. Both were rejected and conspired against. Again, as Joseph goes into the, into the field in Shechem and sees his brothers aren't there, he progresses to Dothan in Genesis chapter number 39. And they see him coming from afar off, remember? And what do they do? They conspire a plan to kill Joseph. Conspire against him. They conspired to kill Jesus. Pilate said himself, I find no fault in this man. Why was Jesus crucified? Because a lot of people wanted to see Jesus dead. They conspired against one another. Both were betrayed by those whom they least expected. His own brothers, his own flesh and blood in Genesis chapter number 39 and 40, they betray their brother and sell him into slavery. And Jesus was rejected and he was betrayed by those whom he loved most. Many of the disciples went back and walked no more with Jesus. We think of Judas and how Judas betrayed Jesus for, remember, 30 pieces of silver. Uh, and Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver. I think Jesus is worth a little bit more than Joseph is. But nonetheless, both of them were rejected. They were betrayed. Both were thrown into a pit. Aren't you thankful both didn't stay in a pit? Both rose again from the pit. Both were servants to those whom rejected them. Both were exalted by God. Do you get the idea? We could do this all day. 
We could go through all the, all the points that we've progressed and we've developed through the life of Joseph. Matter of fact, did you know that there are over 600 typographies in the story of Joseph, of Jesus Christ, that parallel Jesus and Joseph? Did you hear what I said? No one said, wow, you were supposed to say, wow. There are over 600 typographies in the life of Joseph alone. I didn't say the New Testament, I said in the life of Joseph. Some of you are getting nervous. This is not a 600 point outline. We're not gonna preach a 600 point message, but could we cover a couple tonight? Could we look at just a couple? <clears throat> We're not gonna go over again all 600. In Genesis chapter number 41, Joseph has been exalted. We, we developed this a couple of weeks ago. Joseph's been promoted. He's been promoted no longer a slave. Remember, he was the lowest of the low, and now he's the highest of the highest, second in command in all of the land of Egypt. Joseph's been promoted. I'll say it this way. Joseph has been exalted. And that's exactly what I want you to see in light of our Savior, Jesus Christ. When you leave tonight, I want you to think of this. Jesus high and lifted up. Jesus high and lifted up, exalted. I want to have a good year. And again, the only way we're going to have a good year is to make much of him. High and lifted up. Lift Jesus higher. We've already read our text, but uh, up until this point in our study, again, I don't want to be a broken record, but we've gone through the low points that Joseph has had to face. We've talked about that. We've talked about the rejection that Joseph has suffered. We've talked about the betrayal, the false imprisonment, the fact that he's been forgotten in prison. But then again, finally, he's experienced promotion. After 13 long years in the, uh, figuratively, the wilderness and all these difficult things he's had to go through, 30 years of existence, Joseph finally experiences this promotion. He's exalted. His name is above every name. That's what Potiphar, excuse me, Pharaoh says of Joseph in our text. In light of our text, I'd like us to notice how Joseph pictures Jesus in just a few areas. If you're taking notes, you can write them down. Number one, I want you to write this down. Joseph pictures Jesus in his position. Joseph pictures Jesus in his position. Look at verse number 40. Thou shalt be over my house, and according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. First of Joseph's position, we see letter A, his prominence. His prominence. Pharaoh has lifted Joseph to a place of supreme authority. Look at verse number 41. And Pharaoh, uh, yes, and Pharaoh said unto Joseph, see, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it upon Joseph's hand and arrayed, and arrayed him in vestures of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. Joseph is placed on the right hand of the king of Egypt. He's exalted to this, this position of supreme authority. We won't read, but in Hebrews chapter number 10, we read about Jesus high and lifted up, and he's exalted, and he's placed on the right hand of God the Father there in heaven after his ascension. As Joseph's authority had been given to him by another, so it is that Jesus received the authority from God the Father. Matthew chapter 28 and verse number 18, and Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Joseph pictures Jesus in his prominence. Secondly, write this down, letter B. Joseph pictures Jesus in his proficiency. His proficiency, that word proficiency means a high degree of com uh, competence or skill, expertise or ability. Would that describe Joseph? Promoted to this position of high authority, this, pres this prestigious position, he was, he was uh, proficient in two things. I want you to write these down. Number one, he was proficient in his word, we looked at, uh, and again, two weeks ago, so we won't read all of the passage, but in verse number 25 and 37 of our text, remember, Joseph explains the problem at hand, the solution to heat, and the man of the hour. Here's the problem that you have, Potiphar, or excuse me, Pharaoh. There's gonna be seven plenteous years, but they're only gonna be followed by seven years of famine. Famine that is so bad, that you're not even gonna remember the seven good years. 
but he doesn't just provide a problem, he provides a solution. And he says, look, here's what you're gonna do. During the seven plenteous years, you're gonna put aside 70%, live off the 30%, switch that, you're gonna live off the 70%, and you're gonna put away the 30%. That's gonna be enough for you to have bread in the land of Egypt there in the seven uh, years of drought, and the seven years of famine. And then Pharaoh tells Joseph, hey, I've got just the man for the hour. And he appoints Joseph as the head of this project. And it came at no surprise to us that exactly as Joseph predicted, it came to pass. Remember, Joseph was given that ability from God to be able to interpret dreams. Exactly as Joseph predicted, it came to pass. He was proficient in his word. Secondly, write this down. He was proficient in his work. In his work, look at verse number 54. And the seven years of Darth began to come according as Joseph had said. And the Darth was in all the land, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. And when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said unto all the Egyptians, go unto Joseph, what he saith to do, uh, uh, to you do. Joseph said it, and exactly as Joseph said it, that's exactly how it came to pass. Joseph demonstrates his ability to discern dreams. But look at this, the solution to the problem involved the proficiency of Joseph, not just in what he said, but what he did. Look at verse 56. And the famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened the storehouses and sold unto the Egyptians, and the famine waxed sore in the land of Egypt, and all the countries came into Egypt to Joseph for to buy corn, because that the famine was sore in all the land. What a picture of Jesus Christ. What a picture of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ not proficient in his word and in his work? Jesus Christ is proficient in his word in Matthew chapter number 16 and verse number 21. It says, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto all his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes, look at this, and be killed and to be raised again the third day. Jesus appears to his disciples and he says, look, we've got a problem at hand and the problem is sin. The problem is sin and we're ridden with it. But Jesus doesn't just provide a problem, he provides a solution. The Bible, we know, says, for the wages of sin is death. There's a solution, death. Here it is, the man for the hour, Jesus Christ, comes onto the scene and says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus tells the problem at hand, again, the solution to heed and the man for the hour. Exactly as Jesus had predicted, look at this, to the surprise of the disciples, Jesus goes up Calvary, exactly as he says, and he's crucified on the cross and buried in the borrowed tomb of Joseph. But again, I'm so thankful that Jesus wasn't just proficient in his work, but he was proficient in his, not just proficient in his word, but he's proficient in his work. Matthew chapter 28 and verse number one. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake, uh, keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. Here it is. He's not here, for he is risen as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Joseph pictures Jesus in his prominence, both in his word, but not only that, in his work. Joseph said it would come to pass and then Joseph was faithful to be the man of the hour and come through and do exactly as Joseph predicted. So it is that Jesus Christ said, I have to come and I'm going to have to die. But he was not just faithful to say it, he was faithful to show it, faithful to do it and faithful to accomplishment, accomplish it all the way to the very end when he ascends into heaven or excuse me, when he is crucified, buried, risen again and then ascends into heaven. Joseph again pictures Jesus in his prominence, in his proficiency, letter C, write this down, in his prestige. 
his prestige. Look at verse number 41. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it upon Joseph's hand and arrayed him in vestures of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck and he made him to ride in the second chariot which he had and he cried, excuse me, and they cried before him, bow the knee. And he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. Remember just a few verses earlier where we find Joseph. He is the lowest of the low and he is in Potiphar's prison. He is the lowest of the low. He's the bottom man on the totem pole and now he's been exalted to second in command in all of the land of Egypt, the most powerful empire, by the way, in all of the world. Again, Joseph, is, is, he's, now, he's, he's promoted to this position of second in command and Pharaoh adorns Joseph in the attire of a king. What does our verse say? Puts a ring on his finger. Puts some uh, fine linen on Joseph, makes him second in command, and then he makes him to ride in the second chariot. And, and, and as they progress through the streets of Egypt, what do the people of Egypt say? It says it in our text. Bow the knee. That sound familiar? Bow the knee. Here comes Joseph. He's second in command in all the, uh, all the land of Egypt. No more a slave. Now he's a king. Bow the knee. Here comes Joseph, exalted high and lifted up. They continue to say, bow the knee as Joseph progresses through the streets. That's not what we thought was coming when we began this series, was it? Joseph, again, he's come a long way to get here, but finally, second in command in all of the land of Egypt, promoted to this position of prestige. Can you see the picture of Jesus Christ? Our Savior's name, it's no more than a swear word we use when we stub our toe. It's no more than a, a, a person that we learn about in history. But there's coming a day when the Bible says that in the twinkling of an eye, we're gonna be raptured up and we're gonna be in the presence of God. In Philippians chapter two and verse number nine says, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and things in heaven and in things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our Jesus is going to be exalted. There's gonna come a time, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you are in life, it doesn't matter your uh, political view or your religious view, there's gonna come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of the Father. Joseph pictures Jesus in his prominence, in his proficiency, and in his prestige. That's Joseph picturing Jesus in his position. Number two, write this down. Joseph pictures Jesus in his person. <laughs> In his person, who Joseph is, he pictures Jesus in his person. First of his person, letter A, write this down. His first blessing. He pictures the person of God, he pictures the person of Jesus Christ in his first blessing. What do you mean, Lamar? Look at verse number 45. And Pharaoh called his name Zaphnaphpaneah. Say that 10 times fast. Zaphnaphpaneah. Very difficult to say. Zaphnaphpaneah. How many of you would just prefer uh, Joseph's Hebrew name? Okay, I, I, I'm not gonna change the series. Zaphnath Pania, a story of God's sovereignty. No, that's, I, I like his Hebrew name. We're, we're comfortable with Joseph's Hebrew name. I did a little bit of study. We haven't even talked about Joseph's name. I'm talking about the meaning of his name. Here's the meaning of Joseph. It means this, may Jehovah increase. May Jehovah increase. That's not so bad, right? Matter of fact, that's pretty good. And, and, and if we think of Joseph, is that not what Jehovah did in the life of Joseph? May Jehovah increase. Uh, that's exactly what takes place in the life of Joseph as he progresses. But here we are, Genesis chapter number 41 and verse number 45. He's given a new name by Pharaoh. And as I studied, again, I studied this, this name that Pharaoh gave him. What I found totally transformed my opinion of Joseph. His new name, Zaphnaphpaneah, means this. The savior of the world the savior of the world. 
I don't have to connect the knots, but I will. Matthew chapter one and verse number 21. We just celebrated Christmas. And she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Zaphnaphpaniah, the savior of the world. Jesus Christ, the savior of our world, the savior of our sins, the propitiation for our sins. Joseph is given his new name because of the fact that Joseph is the one that saves the people of the land of Egypt painting the coming picture of another man who comes to save the world, but this man did not come to save the world for just seven years, but for all of eternity. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. This is a lengthy poem. I'll read it quickly, and then we're almost done. Years ago, there was a very wealthy man who, with his devoted young son, shared a passion for art collecting. Together, they traveled around the world, adding only the finest art treasures to their collection. Priceless works by Picasso, Van Gogh, Monet, and many others adorned the walls of the family estate. The widowed elderly man looked on with satisfaction as his only child became an experienced art collector. The son's trained eye and sharp business mind caused his father to beam with pride as they uh, dealt with art collectors around the world. As winter approached, War engulfed the nation, and the young man left to serve his country. After only a few short weeks, his father received a telegram. His beloved son was missing in action. The art collector anxiously awaited more news, fearing he would never see his son again. Within days, his worst fears were confirmed. The young man had died while rushing a fellow soldier to the medic. Distraught and lonely, the old man faced the upcoming Christmas holiday with anguish and sadness. The joy of the season a season that he and his son had so looked forward to, would visit his house no longer. On Christmas morning, a knock on the door awakened the depressed old man. As he walked to the door, the masterpiece of art on the walls only reminded him of his son and that he wasn't coming home this Christmas. As he opened the door, he was greeted by a soldier with a large package in his hand. He introduced himself to the man by saying, I was a friend of your son. I was the one whom he was rescuing when he died. May I come in for a moment? I have something I'd like to show you. As the two began to talk, the soldier told of how the man, excuse me, how the man's son had told everyone of his, not to mention his father's, love for fine art. I'm an artist, said the soldier, and I want to give you this. As the old man unwrapped the package, the paper gave way to reveal a portrait of his son. Though the world would never consider this work to be the work of a genius, the painting featured the man, young man's face in striking detail. Overcome with emotion, the man thanked the soldier, promising to hang the picture over the fireplace. A few hours later, after the soldier had departed, the old man set about his task. True to his word, the painting went well above the fireplace, pushing aside thousands of dollars of paintings. And then the man sat in the chair and spent Christmas gazing at the gift that he had been given. During the days and weeks that followed, the man realized that even though his son was no longer with him, the boy's life would live on because of those whom he had impacted. He would soon learn that his son had rescued dozens of wounded soldiers before a bullet stilled his caring heart. As the stories of his son's gallantry continued to reach him, fatherly pride and satisfaction began to ease the grief. The painting of his son soon became his most prized possession. For eclipsing any interest in the pieces for which museums around the world clamored, he told his neighbors it was the greatest gift he had ever received. The following spring, the old man became very ill and passed away. The art world waited in anticipation. Unmindful of the story of the man's only son, but in honor 
those paintings would be sold in an auction. According to the will of the old man, all of the artwork would be auctioned on Christmas Day, the day that he had received his greatest gift. The day soon arrived and art collectors from around the world gathered to bid on some of the world's most spectacular paintings. Dreams would be fulfilled this day. Greatness would be achieved as many claimed, I have the greatest collection in all of the world. The auction began with the painting that was not on any museum's list. It was the painting of the man's son. The auctioneer asked for the opening bid. The room was silent. Who will open the bidding at $100, he asked. Minutes passed. No one spoke. From the back of the room came, who cares about this painting? It's just a picture of his son. Let's forget it and go on to the good stuff. More voices echoed in agreement. No, we have to sell this first, replied the auctioneer. Now who will take it? Who will take the son? Finally, a friend of the old man spoke. Will you take $10 for the painting? That's all I have. I knew the boy and I'd like to have it. I have $10. Will anyone go higher? Called the auctioneer. After more silence, the auctioneer said, going once, going twice, gone. The gavel fell, tears filled the room, and someone exclaimed, now we can get on to the good stuff and progress. The auctioneer looked at the audience and announced that the auction was over. Stunned disbelief and quietness filled the room. Someone spoke up and asked, what do you mean it's over? We didn't come this far for a picture of the old guy's son. What about all the treasures? What about all the paintings? It's worth millions of dollars. I traveled so far. I demand that you explain what's going on. The auctioneer replied, it's very simple. According to the will of the father, whoever takes the son gets it all. Whoever takes the son gets it all. July 13th of 1997, I'm so thankful. As a four-year-old boy, my mom told me of this son and I took the son and got it all. Joseph paints a picture of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter number four and verse number 12. Neither is there salvation in any other for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The first blessing that's bestowed upon Joseph is his new name, Zaphnath savior of all the world. And Jesus' name, it means this, Savior of the world, that he may deliver man from their sins. Let her be, write this down, we'll be quick. His foreign bride, Joseph pictures uh, Jesus' person by uh, his first blessing, also by his foreign bride. Look at verse number 45. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath and gave him a wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. And Joseph went out of the land, uh, excuse me, went over went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph became the husband of a bride, and I want you to notice this, this was a Gentile bride, this was not a wife that was Hebrew. I skimmed completely over this until I did a little bit of study. What's the significance? Joseph is given a bride that is not a Hebrew, he's given a Gentile bride. What's the significance? What picture does it paint of Jesus Christ? Real quickly, John chapter number one and verse number 11. Reread one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. The Bible says Jesus came into his own and his own received him not. Jesus came to his Jewish lineage. He comes to the Jews, to the Hebrews, and he shows himself, and his own people did not receive him. And then the brideship, God opens the door, and he, he extends the hand of his brideship to the Gentile. And that passage continues, and you know, where, you know where we call the bride of Christ now? You're sitting in it right now. The New Testament local church is the bride of Jesus Christ. It's not of Jewish descent, it's of Gentile descent. Do we have any Jews here? I don't think so. Most of us are of Gentile descent. That bride that Joseph took, it paints a picture of the bride of Jesus Christ in the form of the New Testament church. Joseph pictures the person of Jesus by the first blessing, again by the foreign bride, let her see, write this, his future business. 
Let her see his future business. In verse number 46 through 53, Joseph begins to take business. The business that Joseph was involved in during the seven plenteous years and prosperous years was not that of current events, but rather future preparation. Again, the seven prosperous years were to be spent preparing for the seven years of famine. And that's what Joseph is doing in the seven prosperous years. He's not living it up in the seven prosperous years, living in the moment, but rather he's setting aside and he's putting aside something that is to come in the seven years of famine. We need to understand that when Jesus Christ ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand of the Father, he wasn't clocking out, but clocking in. He was checking in. He did the heavy lifting. He endured the cross of Calvary. He went up to the cross of Calvary again. He was faithful in his word and he was faithful in his work to suffer the cross of Calvary, but his work was not finished yet. You say, hold on, Lamar. Did he not say one of the seven sayings of Christ on the cross is it is finished? Yes, he did say that. It is finished. It is finished. What is finished? Phase one is complete. Phase one is complete. What's phase number two? Look at John chapter 14 and verse number one. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. God's telling us, he tells his disciples, look, it is finished, but I'm not finished. It's complete, the cross is complete, but I'm not done. Jesus Christ does not have a lazy bone in his body. He is busy about the work of the Father, even as we speak right now, preparing a place for us to dwell with him in eternity in the presence of God the Father. Joseph paints a beautiful picture of the business of our Savior as he prepares for our future in heaven. Joseph pictures Jesus in his position Pictures Jesus in his person, lastly, number three tonight, Jesus. Joseph pictures Jesus in his power, in his power. What power does Joseph picture? Glad you asked. Letter A, write this down, his saving power. His saving power, look at verse number 56. And the famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses. Joseph held the keys that unlocked the doors of life for the nation of Egypt. Matter of fact, it says all nations come to Joseph. Revelation chapter one and verse 18, I am he that liveth and was dead and behold, I am alive evermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Joseph held the keys, of doors, uh, the, the keys to the doors of life and death. Jesus Christ has the keys of life and death and desires that everyone should come into him. But look at this, not everyone has the key. Only one person has the key. We're gonna develop this thought here in just a second. Romans, excuse me, John 14, six says, Jesus saith unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I have the keys to heaven. I have the keys to life, and it is through my sacrifice, through myself, Jesus Christ is saying, I am the door. No man gets to the Father but by me. Joseph pictures Jesus in his saving power. Letter B, write this down, his sufficient power. His sufficient power, verse 49 And Joseph gathered corn as the sand of the sea very much until he left numbering, for it was without number. Skip down to verse number 54. And the seven years of Darth began to come according according as Joseph had said, and the Darth was in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. Joseph not only had saving power, but sufficient power for all those that would come to him desiring bread. Again, Joseph had the bread. All they had to do to get the bread was come to Joseph. Verse 57 says, all the countries came unto Joseph. All, and all countries came unto Egypt to Joseph. If you're hungry, come eat. 
If you desire bread, come to me. Matter of fact, it doesn't matter if you desire it or not, you're going to die. If you do not come unto me, if you don't come and find Joseph, you're going to die because he's the sustainer of life. Why? His power is sufficient. Jesus Christ's power is sufficient. Jesus Christ's power is sufficient. It was sufficient for all men. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter what you're doing. Doesn't matter what sin you've committed. No one is too far gone to experience the saving power of Jesus Christ. Why? It's sufficient. Second, uh, Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse number nine, and he said unto them, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Joseph pictures the saving power of Jesus, pictures the sufficient power of Jesus. Let her see, write this down. His singular power. This is important. His singular power. Look at verse 55. And when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said unto all the Egyptians, what does he say? Go unto Joseph. Go unto Joseph. If you want bread, get to Joseph. If you desire life, Joseph has the key. If you want to have life-sustaining power admonished and given to you, you're going to have to get to Joseph. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5 says, for there is one mediator, excuse me, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man. What does it say? The man Christ, Jesus. Joseph pictures the saving power of Jesus. He pictures the sufficient power of Jesus. Joseph pictures the singularity of the power of Jesus. And lastly tonight, write this down, the scope of his power. Letter D, the scope of his power. How far could this power go? Where did Joseph find his limit? Last verse of our text in verse 57. And all the countries came into Egypt to Joseph for to buy corn because that the famine was sore in all the lands. In other words, there was no limit to his power. There was no limit. There was no limit to the scope of Joseph's power. The Bible says that all countries came unto him, and we're gonna continue to develop this thought next week as we progress through this uh, famine that they would experience, but all the nations of the world would come to Egypt desiring to find bread. Why? That's where Joseph was. Uh, Pastor's kind of touched on this in his progression through latter times ministries. And a couple of weeks ago, we spent a lot of time uh, on 1 Timothy chapter four and verse number 10. It says, for therefore we labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the savior of all men. That's important. Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. In other words, there is no limit to the power of God's saving grace. People will try to tell you differently. People will try to tell you that it's only for a select few. People will try to tell you that God is predestined and predetermined, but we've learned it's for all men. Anybody that's gonna be able to get to Joseph, all the, if they want sustaining life, all they have to do is get to Joseph. It's, 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 it's offered to everybody. It's not just offered to the Egyptian. All the countries came to Joseph for this bread. Isaiah 53 and verse number six. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him, that is himself, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquities of most men. The iniquities of just an elect few. The iniquities of those whom he has predestined. No, it says the iniquities of us all. The scope of his saving grace reaches down to the lowest of sinners and brings them to the source of eternal life in the only source of saving power, Jesus Christ. Joseph paints many pictures, some 600, but none greater than the picture that he paints of Jesus Christ in that Joseph was the savior of all the land of Egypt and all the countries in the, land, in the time of famine. Can I tell you right now, we're famished. We're living in a day and age where man is depraved because of our sin and our sin that it separates us from God. We have a major problem at hand. Here's the solution. There is none righteous, no, not one, and all of us will face the payment for sin. 
But Joseph paints no greater picture than Jesus Christ. Or excuse me, Jesus is painted so beautifully in Genesis chapter number 41 in that Joseph sustained life in the time of famine. So it is that Jesus Christ sustains life for those who are hungering and thirsting. In closing, we see the beautiful picture that Joseph paints in the New Testament of Jesus Christ. As Pharaoh looks out on the starving people of the land of Egypt, again, what does our text say? What does he say? If you're hungry, go to Joseph. If you're hungry, get to Joseph. He has the keys to the storehouse and he will give life. If you're here tonight and you're spiritually starving, can I tell you, same admonishment that that Pharaoh gave to the Egyptians, I give to you, go to Jesus. Go to Jesus, he's the sustainer of life and most people in this room are saved, I understand that, but he's not just the giver of life, he's the sustainer of life. On this side of the cross, how many of you still need grace? You're not gonna get it through anybody else but Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who gives grace to help in time of need. He has the power to save. He has sufficient power. His power is singular, but I'm so thankful that the scope of his power has no limit. He gives the bread to anyone that's hungry, but the only way that you can get that bread is by going to him. That's the picture that Joseph paints of Jesus Christ. So as we face this year in 2019, I want you to think about that. If you're not saved, the decision is very easy. Come to Joseph. Come to Jesus. He's the one who opens up the keys has the keys to open up the doors of life. But if you're saved, go to Jesus. If there's anything that we needed, it is grace in 2019, but we're only gonna get it by coming to the source of our strength, Jesus Christ. And so as we stand to our feet, we'll have a brief moment of invitation. I know I've been short. I tried to stick to my notes tonight. I'm not feeling well. I hope I have not been a distraction from this truth. Jesus Christ is the sustainer of life and he's the giver of life and we need grace. The only way we can get it to him, he says, he opens and offers it freely, but we've got to come to him. We'll say a brief word of prayer and then we'll go directly into our prayer time. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with us tonight. Thank you, Lord, for giving your son, Jesus Christ, to be uh, the only way uh, that we can see life. Lord, I pray that you'd help us, Lord, as we go into 2019, and that we'd be mindful of the sustaining grace that is offered to all men. It's offered to those who need you for life. It's offered to those who have life but need sustaining. Lord, I pray that you'd help us. I wanna have a great year. The only way we're gonna have a great year is by exalting you and thinking and making much of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to do that. Bless our prayer time in Jesus' name, amen. You can come forward or if not,